Welcome to the Lionheart Podcast. I'm Jenny and I am delighted and honored to be speaking with Anna Breitenbach. Anna is well known and respected for her work as an interspecies communicator. Her passions lay in the areas of wildlife conservation, intuitive communication, and also in teaching others to remember this natural way of being and relating with the natural world. Anna reminds us that intuition and connection is not a gift to some, but rather a natural way of being, coexisting and co-creating. I want to start today by saying thank you, Anna, for the deeply integrated work that you do. You truly have helped so many people to re-establish clear perceptions of the natural world and you've also helped many non-human animals to live better lives. I know it's not always easy, but it truly is a beautiful message and work that you are sharing. Thank you. It truly is my pleasure, actually, my pleasure and my passion. So it's a privilege. <laughs> we are really quite in the midst of some uncertain times and things are changing. And I often hear people speaking about awakening, times of awakening, and I guess this can happen in personal crises and now it seems to be a a bit of a collective crisis, a collective awakening. I'd really like to start with your thoughts on this global awakening and how this may have something to do with re-establishing our right relationship with the natural world. Yes, it absolutely does. And in these current times of things like the microorganisms or like the virus pandemic we're currently experiencing, we humans have an opportunity to be truly humbled, <laughs> realizing that we can't control something because of our intellect or technology or apparent evolution towards more sophistication, that at the end of the day, we too are an organism. And, and you know, our species is also just another living organism in the greater scheme of things. I think the roots of the Chinese word for crisis are made up of the words meaning danger and opportunity. And that's certainly something people can relate to in these times. So most of us, it seems to be human nature to just get into a comfortable rut and routine of doing things the same way. And that's just normal human psychology. We become ingrained in our habits and in our perceptions of the world and in our thoughts and words and actions. And it really does take some kind of knock out of our hamster wheel of life as usual to gain a bit of perspective or at least be willing to consider a different perspective. It's very interesting to me that this is a global phenomenon now because that makes it less easy for humans to point fingers at a particular place or cause or just kind of ignore it because it's happening over there somewhere else in the world. The fact that it's eventually spread to be happening everywhere does call us into a more of a collective perspective and to examine and appreciate what might be at play here. I find in my life anyway, the biggest challenges have been the biggest teachers because they have shifted me out of my comfort zone. And sometimes it's only when things have got very uncomfortable for me that I've been forced to create or contemplate a new way and make some different choices. I'm very pleased that this perceived threat, and it's only a threat in our perception from our place of disconnection, but I'm very interested that this perceived threat is kind of coming from the natural world itself and quite frankly, I think this is a fairly gentle wake-up call 
or phenomenon that's happening. Yeah, there could have been any number of much more uh, severe and intense scenarios that might have happened. And so it's still really gentle um, in terms of very low death rates and people are being offered the opportunity to give up normal ways of being. That doesn't mean that we you know, all have the privilege of taking a pause and becoming more meditative. For the vast majority of the world's population, it's literally a battle for survival mm. and to fend off starvation right now. And for that majority of the world's population, there is not the luxury of being able to contemplate more spiritual matters or reinventing their lives. There literally is a you know, hand-to-mouth a crisis around how to get food into their bellies. But that is such a big feature of what's going on that you know, surely some rebalancing has to happen. There just have to be new ways of going forward. So the fact that this current issue comes from the natural world is forcing us to look at our direct relationship with the natural world and the practices that exist and it's not about one market in China or about one bat species and then intermediate host, you know, and eventually coming across to humans as the mutations happen. It's not about one place or one wet market. You know, a fish market down at the local harbor is also a wet market. The dreadful phenomenon of factory farming and the incredibly unhealthy and crushing lifestyles that those animals live also breed these illnesses that are diseases for the animals themselves and of course will cross the species boundaries as well. We can't pin this on one place in one country at one wet market. We really have to acknowledge that it's how we are treating our other animal kin, our wilder relatives or the factory farmed or even the domesticated ones. We have to look at, at how we interact with them and how we don't let wild animals be wild anymore or live in more natural scenarios. And then these unnatural things start to happen. So that's how I think it calls for each of us to, to become aware of and to shift our choices in our consumer behavior and the kinds of things we talk about, the kind of conversations that we have. I think that's the opportunity in this for everybody. And you said that because it's a global crisis and we're all a part of it, there's no way we can point the finger out there, which in turn sort of brings the finger back here. <laughs> <laughs> Pointing within, looking within, really, to find the answers perhaps or the possible opportunities, would you say? Yes, yes, absolutely. I think another, in fact, if not the bigger, um, what to say, I suppose, the bigger problem about all of this is the response of the authorities at large mm -hmm. across the globe. Mm -hmm. To me, that's the bigger problem, is the very draconian control, uh, locking people away, um, the fear-mongering, mm. desperate grasping and scrabbling around to try to prop up economies and prop up the systems as they are currently. When, if things were left to run their course, the systems might, you know, just sort of wobble a bit and they probably should wobble and their mm. financial systems such as they are currently designed to prop up the haves and to disenfranchise the have-nots on the human levels. Um, those definitely do need to come into question and begin to disintegrate. So, yes, Absolutely. I think operating in one's own you know, human sphere of influence, you know, keeping things local, supporting local businesses, growing your own food, um, becoming more community-minded and neighborly, 
amongst other humans in your area as well as towards the animals, refraining from using poisons on your garden or in household cleaning products, just really, really re-examining about how we can live in a good way right where we are without any grandiose sense of needing to change the world out there and without buying into the fear of what might happen to the world out there. Mm. We can all choose to live in a good way right where we are. And, mm. and that for me is a great opportunity. Yes, it is. And I've been seeing that too. And I must ask, I mean, you have such a beautiful space and connection with the natural world, <laughs> probably unlike anything I've ever seen before. I, and that's why, you know, you're special. <laughs> and I know I'm not the only one that thinks that, but you have such a beautiful connection and relationship and you share that message, you show that message. And do you sometimes see it like there's two different worlds when you see what's happening out here and the authorities? I see and hear what you're saying that, and it's violent as well and corruption that goes on or, the, or just the disconnect that goes on. Is it like two different worlds? Mm, it really is like two different worlds and thank goodness I can hold contradiction or paradox. I also might just think I'm going entirely mad but mm. you know, I can be walked down the little dirt street in the neighbourhood where I live and well, I just had an experience this morning where where I was told about the remnants of a dead porcupine on a road nearby and I, I just instantly had a feeling it was who I considered to be my friend, this mm. elderly lady porcupine who for the last nine months or so, every couple of days has come in and a hole I've left open for her under the garden gate and, and she's elderly and seeks refuge in this little garden and I just had a sense it was her and so I was walking to the scene of where it was and when I got there it was confirmed in all sorts of ways that it was indeed her and I felt sad for the way in which she died at a stuff street but the impact blew her body apart spread it out across 14 meters and there in her stomach was the partially digested last meal of hers that I'd witnessed her eating at around 12 midnight in my garden and when I was there, a few cyclists and motorists passed and they had to detour around the mess of you know, blood and quills and everything. They didn't register or connect with it. It's a very strange sort of human, it's like us, us humans are sort of overlaid on, on the world and there's all of this going on. You know, the birds are moving around and doing the most amazing things and having their bird politics in the garden and... There's so much happening with the little buds coming up in between the grasses and there's this absolute myriad of expressions of life happening the whole time. And just walking down your average street, we are passing through the most amazing universe mm. of realities of all the different species. And we don't have to be trained or have learned anything in particular. All we need to do is just to be present and aware. And if we are, we're just present to this mystery. We get to appreciate and notice which little way the the breeze is blowing and how the birds are responding to that and which way the seeds are blowing. And so as I'm walking, even talking with a friend maybe, it's like there's a subtext or a second track that's running in my awareness of this more than human world, which is a fantastic phrase that David Abram coined. And it's like parallel processing, some aspect of myself that is not engaged with my cognitive or verbal activities at the time is aware of this amazing kaleidoscope that I'm moving through as I'm walking. They've become different worlds because we humans have disconnected from them mostly. And we can only seem to get back into one of our five senses by seeing something that we appreciate or hearing a sound that stands out above the others. It feels like two different worlds. Of course, we are participant in the one world that everything is, but we've taken ourselves out of a state of presence. Mm. And we humans live so much in our heads. 
I saw research that says that 93% of the time, us humans are not present with our minds. We're either rehashing something from the past or anticipating or thinking about, you know, future conversation or project. To me, it's like, never mind fears about a so-called zombie apocalypse. I think it is right here. It's right around us. The way we humans are individually behaving, we are already zombies. <laughs> like we're sleepwalking everywhere. <laughs> the zombie apocalypse is happening. <laughs> And when we're living in our minds, well, the way you describe it, then being in the past, we're just not living if we're not really mm. in the present moment. I loved the image you posted the other day with the butterfly and you just said a couple of words. It was like, mm. to slow down. Yeah. To stop. So, exactly, <laughs> just to slow down and stop. And I, I'd seen her sitting in your him sitting in a little piece of shade and so still... And then I noticed that the wings were still a little wet around the edges and the wings were still kind of stuck together. And that's when I realized as I moved closer that the butterfly had only sort of recently emerged and was waiting for its wings to dry completely. And it took a couple of hours. Slowly the sun crept to that part of the garden and you know, the butterfly was in no rush and was willing to take its chances. Sitting out there in the middle of the garden was all sorts of insects eating birds flying around and it was just being itself and it wasn't trying to rush along its emerging and its you know, being. It just let itself slowly become ready for what was next. It was a becoming rather than a doing or a creating of something. That's such a beautiful teaching for humans. Mm. To just drop into being. I often hear you refer to this dropping into being. Mm. being in a state of presence and also our five senses as wonderful as they are they give us perspective but to a point yes and then yes our five senses are it's kind of a, again a paradox our five senses are a fantastic gateway to becoming present and and that's the easiest way I know how is to just notice with my five senses what's going on in my immediate environment, right down to the smelling or the feeling of the air against my skin or if I'm sitting down, the pressure of my flesh against the earth or the chair or whatever. It's like a gateway or portal to becoming more expanded and connected to everything because when we're being present, our, our physical bodies are there with all that we bring with it. So noticing our five senses is a way to access our own experience of ourselves being located right where we are. Mm. And, and when we are fully with our five senses, just sitting in that chair somewhere, all our awareness is with where we are. And that's when, I don't know if we, one can even really call it a sixth sense, or maybe it's a very high-functioning synthesis, all the five senses vibrating at a very present level. But we can certainly feel not separate from Mm. and not different from the environment itself. And that feeling of expandedness um, allows us to sense and aware the subtle things, the subtle energetics of things that are happening in that environment as well. And so it is like dropping in. And I think for me the key word there is dropping. Mm. You see, there's nothing fancy. There's no fancy spiritual technique or mystery school process to have to invoke. It's just about dropping and letting go of the stuff that we're busy with usually all the time. So it's a releasing and a letting go of thinking mind, you know, busyness internally, tension in the body, even the desire to connect or to, mm. you know, achieve anything could do with some dropping. So when we drop, drop, drop and just let go and let go and let go, all that's left is our most real selves placed in an environment 
And I have to say that the feedback from the natural world is fantastic mm -hmm. when we do that. It's almost a sense of relief. It's like, ah, oh, great, now you're here, you know, welcome. And they will mm -hmm. immediately relax their bodies around us, go back to their baseline behavior. I think the greatest compliment that any human can be paid by an animal is for that animal to go about their business as if you weren't there. Now, that doesn't stroke our ego much at all, <laughs> but there's compliments insofar as it indicates that we are not a disturbance on the landscape, we're not a threat, we're not sending out these hectically intense electromagnetic frequencies of busy thoughts, trying to achieve anything. And the moment an animal relaxes enough to just go about their business, if I weren't there, that's when I feel quite sublimated with the environment and I know that, that I'm fully there, fully present. Mm. Mm. A matching, a resonance, a vibrational frequency. Mm. And just what you were saying about when we're fully in the five senses and then something bigger emerges, something greater, this yes. is when the communication begins to emerge naturally, isn't it? Because there's no doing in um, interspecies communication or telepathy, right. is there? Exactly. You got it right. There isn't a doing. There might be what seems like a doing if we have a particular inquiry or we need to send a particular message. Mm to that bird, uh, you know, move close to the purple bush, you know, because there's a cat you can't see that's getting too close to you, you know. So at least we have a particular data, a piece of data, or, you know, sort of set of information we want to give. There's no doing. When we have dropped everything else sufficiently to just be present, then we will become aware of impressions that are the isness of whatever is present in that environment, either the feeling or the, even the physical state of an animal. We might be sitting there having dropped everything and just be regarding the pretty bird in the tree and then feel a you know, slight ache in our left elbow and we come to see when that bird takes off from the branch that it's a wound on its left wing. So we will automatically be attuned to and be able to be aware of just what is in the environment we don't have to go looking um, and if we do pick up the mind to ask particular questions or to send particular information that's fine but that's more like weaving a very specific thread in sort of in a one line direction on the web that we're actually sitting in and part of when we are dissolved enough into that web if there is anything happening on that web, the whole web vibrates, plucking the string of a spider's web, pluck one of the lines and the whole web vibrates, the whole web vibrates, these sort of echoes of that thing. Mm. And so if we just become present and humble enough to just be in that web and just one of the participant threads, if something significant happens or if anything happens or is felt, we will feel that move through us and we will get an internal impression. We might get a little mental image or physical sensation like the example I described. We might even have words come to mind. These things will rise and fall as the impressions come and go. It doesn't matter in what form they appear within our own minds. That's just our brain doing the translation of the incoming unconscious intuitive information. Sort of going into a little of the mechanics now of uh, interspecies communication. Could you go into that a little more because there is this state of being and being open, but now there's more a direct communication, which is very much the work that you do, yeah? Absolutely. Well, in the terms of the mechanics of a possible process, the, the first part mm. is definitely what we've already been discussing, which mm. is to be still <laughs> mm -hmm. and to drop, drop, drop. It can help to start with consciously relaxing one's body because if we relax our body, the mind tends to follow. And this is all about relaxing the mind 
and relaxing it into the background so that our greater sense of knowing, our intuition, can be in the foreground. Well, I find closing my eyes helps also because then I am not going to be automatically analyzing and interpreting visual data that's flowing in through my eyeballs. Mm. So I try to shut myself off to even more distractions than I'm automatically generating internally. <laughs> I close my eyes and I consciously take myself through relaxation head to toe or to shortcut that I just imagine there's a lovely warm sun shining overhead that's pouring this golden light into me that just kind of soothes and relaxes the muscles and makes everything molten as it flows down throughout my body and up the feet and from there on I try to keep my mental attention just on my natural breathing rhythm because you see the mind really is insistent on being busy as Ramana Mahashi said of the mind it's like a drunk monkey that's been stung like a scorpion <laughs> particularly when we deliberately go quiet the mind tends to panic a little and start to find all sorts of things to throw our way it's amazing when i'm busy entering a, an intuitive space to communicate with an animal the most random things pop up the grocery list or a conversation i should have with my mother and, and as carl jung says what you resist persists there's not much point trying to fight those things off so far better to just choose keep on bringing yourself back navigating back to just watching your natural breathing rhythm because breathing is something that we do automatically anyway mm. and it's like giving the mind something to do it's like oh just run along and watch your breathing <laughs> and it's a very calming thing to just focus on the you know breathing in and breathing out it becomes quite sort of hypnotic in the end don't expect your mind to go completely quiet unless you're a very accomplished meditator that's particularly likely and my mind doesn't go completely quiet mm. But I just have an attitude towards those internal thoughts of, oh, well, you just comment from the peanut gallery, let them be in the background and instead keep choosing to watch my breathing instead. And when you're feeling peaceful and present, it's important then to worry less about the mind and to come into a heart-centered awareness because this connection space is really happening in the spirit of unconditional love and care for and regard for and respect for and all of those sorts of feelings this isn't just a mental exercise in a technical way so it helps me to bring my own attention to my own heart center just vaguely somewhere in the center of my chest that also helps to get me out of my mind mm. and once i've placed my awareness lightly in my heart center i then just visualize that expanding like concentric rings moving out from me i imagine that my heart energy is just expanding and expanding and expanding all around me above below to each side and behind me and as it expands it's connecting me and it's included too and it's including everything that is in the space and distance is of no consequence here you know, I can expand my feeling of my heart energy to include the birds. There's three pigeons within a few meters of me right now. Or yesterday there was a whale out beyond the bay about five kilometers away. It was entangled in fishing gear. So I stood on the shore with the rocks and expanded my heart center out into the ocean. And you can keep going. It's the idea of it. And it is so. That's how telepathic communication quickly as well. I could be sent a photograph of an animal on the other side of the world and just imagine my heart energy expanding across the entire globe to incorporate that one that I'm connecting with. So once we are just feeling our heart energy expanded to include everything, we are then open and available. Mm. And if there's a particular being you wish to connect with, it's helpful to then send an energetic greeting, not because it's polite or because animals care about etiquette, but because, again, that's a lovely, caring way to just make a connection and to, in that moment, form a relationship. 
of a sort, with your greeting, with your honoring, with your acknowledgement of. It's like a namaste. Mm. That's what creates the little two-way connection or the, or the thread of connection between you and that with whom you're going to be connecting. And once I send that energetic greeting, I might then more conceptually just hold in my awareness and, you know, an invitation for them to show me, just show me what you'd like me to know. If I don't spontaneously become aware of any vague impressions crossing my inner realm, I then might ask a more specific question. How are you feeling about this environment? Show me your body. But I'll only ask specific questions if I do have an agenda for the communication where I'm trying to find out something or resolve, you know, resolve an issue. Did that happen with the whale that you saw that was entangled? Was, were you able to help? Her or him? Yes, um, couldn't see, even through the binoculars, couldn't see at all where she was. And from a neighbouring town, the National Sea Rescue Institute had launched two boats. They arrived on the scene while, and they were also looking for her, as was I, mm-hmm. through binoculars, and no one could see her. We'd feared she might have drowned already, been dragged under by the crayfish mm-hmm. uh, metal cages and the, you know, all of that. And then I realised, wait a minute, what am I still doing using my eyes and using mm-hmm. my five senses? <laughs> I to find her. The boat was going up and down, um, you know, cutting transects in a very orderly fashion, as a search and rescue would. So I put down the binoculars, closed my eyes, and did exactly the process I've described in a super fast fashion, because <laughs> time was of the essence. Mm-hmm. And um, just expanded my heart energy out into the ocean. In my mind, I asked, "Where are you? Just where are you?" And I immediately got a feeling, a sense of warmth in my body, kind of slightly left of center and a directional feeling like a bearing mm. for her being, you know, if I were looking at a clock, she would be my sort of 10 o'clock. I opened my eyes, looked there in that direction, didn't know how far to look. I just got a sense of bearing, like relative to me you know, in the physical sense. Mm-hmm. I saw no proof of it. And the boat was still looking in an entirely different area. And so I said to her, please blow, please blow out of your blowhole. It was a southern right whale. I said, please blow as often as you can um, so that the humans who are able to help you can see where you are and come to your aid. And in 10 seconds, a series of blows started. That oh. lovely view started a few kilometers offshore in exactly the 10 o'clock direction. And the boat saw that too and beetled over to her as did the second one. And she moved away at first out of fear. Then the communication mm-hmm. shifted to, um, and then she took a deep dive and panicked at the arrival of the birds, took a deep dive, held her breath as long as she could underwater. Then my communication shifted to wanting to reassure that these birds are trying to help. And shortly after that, I felt like I was drowning and getting very disorientated and sort of rolling around. So I actually had to go sit down because I was having her experience. And she was staying underwater as long as possible, but really not doing well. So I went to sit down to stabilize myself. I just kept trying to guide her to trust these people who were trying to help her. At that time, I was put in touch with the, the head of the Sea Rescue Institute. We had a call, you know, sort of sea to shore to try to find out what might be needed. But they were so involved in the rescue, they talk much. In the end, it was successful. They managed to get some stuff off her. They didn't know if they got it all off. And she beetled away about another two kilometers and they gave pursuit. And then they ran out of daylight. The sun had already set and they phoned me from the boat. Uh, Well, then there were three boats involved. They phoned me from the boat and they said, could you, we can't see it properly anymore. She's about 20 meters away from us and she seems quite calm but we don't know if she's calm or close to death. <laughs> mm. Could you let us know if she's telling you that we've got all this stuff off her? And indeed, she was free and clear of all the ropes and everything. So it was, <laughs> it was great to be able to use this form of connection to literally help find her in time. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. 
Well, and you really become one. That's uh, the way mm. you describe experiencing what they're experiencing. You really become yeah. one with the, there is no other, is there? Yeah, that's right. You know, in the beginning, we think it's a sort of a mechanistic process of mm. like dialing up a telephone, you know, and, and one being with another being. Mm. But no, what's actually happening is emerging of experience and we fully know them and they fully know us as well in that moment, by the way. Mm. And we'll know this even from animals that live more closely to humans. Look at horses and how incredibly beautifully sensitive they are and attuned mm. to human emotions. The pets that live with us, they'll know when we're feeling a certain way or needing a little extra bit of comfort or we're feeling agitated it's a merged experience we fully know the experience of the other non-separate from self it's so natural it's just happening all the time it's whether we're yes. aware or attuned to it really you spoke about dissolving as well as part of the process yeah. and the busy busy mind the animals don't have that do they that busy busy mind it, it's like when you speak of dissolving are no. you <laughs> they don't have that like we do and i guess that in turn creates that sort of separation or illusion of separation and disconnect. But then this dissolving, is that a dropping of that busy mind? When you say dissolve, do we just dissolve self? Mm. Yes, it's quite a paradox. We do. We drop the busy out of our idea. Our idea of self can only be mm. in the mind mm. because it's an idea of a separate entity and that we've all possessed by the entity of an id, you know, to get mm -hmm. psychological terms. Identity and self can only exist in the mind because it's that sort of observing, you know, obser inner observer status. So yes, when we drop the mind, we can feel dissolved and ignorant. often for the ego-based mind, that's quite scary. It's like, whoa, where are my boundaries? I feel, mm. all, you know, feel not here, feel not me. <laughs> but that's actually the most connected space. Why it's a paradox is because for us to internally become aware of the other being there, we need our mind to discern that as an internal descriptive process. Mm. So we are automatically connected. By the way, all of us is always deeply connected on a quantum level to everything around us all the time. Mm -hmm. That's just the quantum reality. Mm -hmm. But we don't know we are. We don't know any specifics and we don't know about it until something sort of pings the inner awareness of our thinking minds. So that's why it's a paradox. You know, we sort of have to be able to lightly pick up the mind enough to be the translator of what is so that we can aware the actual data. So, and it's a paradox because we can exist both in that dissolved, non-egoic, you know, connected to everything state and lightly pick up the mind as a useful tool in that moment. Those two things can coexist. It's only when we're coming at something from the mind and as a mechanistic process mm. um, that we're severely limiting what's possible in our perception. I guess that's why the heart plays such an important role as well and feeling. Mm. 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 Absolutely. In the air element, in the What on Earth series, which I so enjoyed, you spoke about, this brings me to, reminds me of this non-local consciousness or non-differentiation. It's, and the zero point field, there is mind and there's busy mind, but there is also that one mind, that part of us, mm. the shared mind. Yes, there really is. And, and a useful resource for folks to look up would be the work of Rupert Sheldrake, um, S-H-E-L. E-R-A-K-E at sheldrake.org. He is the scientist who first proved with very robust experiments the telepathic communication between people and their dogs. And he speaks about morphic fields and morphic resonance and how there is this awareness that resides outside of our mind that we're not separate from. So that would be a great resource for people to read more about if the quantum science side of things appeals. I think it's really nice to... I appreciate both sides, the quantum 
science side and also just the natural ancient culture side. And this is really not something that's new or a gift to anyone, is it? Clearly, it's really returning back to our natural state and who we are to connect in kinship with other creatures, any life. It isn't, I know, I remember at the end of your documentary, this is not supernatural, this is not supernatural. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's such an important reminder for all of us mm. that this is normal and natural and it's not, people aren't different because they can communicate with other species. I mean, we're animals too, really. We just have a different way of communicating that we're so habituated to, aren't we, as humans? Mm. The, the Absolutely. Word. I love the way you... Where you put it, actually, because most of us humans think we're above the other animal species, but we are just habituated, exactly, <laughs> habituated ourselves, and we have tamed ourselves. <laughs> that also brings me to the intelligence side of things, as if because we have words or read books, <laughs> the things we do with our mind, that animals don't do, as though we're more intelligent, but really that's not at all what intelligence is. Would you say intelligence is life itself? It's innate in every living being. How do you experience that with all the different species that you connect with and communicate with? It is a fantastic privilege to be able to experience these different beings, their different worldviews, their different perspectives, and their, their different expressions of intelligence. Mm. Um, to experience it directly because you know, I don't have prior knowledge or ideas of how an octopus or a banana slug might think or view the world. By the way, science has very little idea too. Science is based only on human observation, which is by default automatically constrained by the human perspective. Mm. So I can dip straight into that one's perspective. And I remember the first time I communicated with an insect, how blown away I was. Mm. I was asking a dragonfly how it chose which you know, where to go land and completely unexpectedly I was given the gift of seeing through this dragonfly's eyes it was absolutely trippy to be experiencing vision through compound eyes which is what insects eyes are and although back in biology class in primary school I probably learned about compound vision nothing could have prepared me for the actual experience of it my entire visual experience of the world changed to be this very mosaic-like, very delicate, intricate mosaic-like kaleidoscope and sort of dual-channel processing, you know, getting information from two different visual fields because, of course, the eyes are on the sides of the head and these most amazing expressions of the spectrum of light you know, beyond what normal human vision is. And I, I was privileged enough to borrow that direct experience of the dragonfly for those few seconds. There's no thinking that could have got me there. It was direct experience. And in general, too, when you're doing the wildlife consulting and so on, I'm always trying to help people understand that the animals are very intelligent and behaving in a way that is absolutely appropriate to their lifestyles, to their bodies, to their circumstance. Intelligence has got nothing at all to do with brain size or even the existence of a brain in the cognitive sense. You know, intelligence is, as you said, life itself. Life itself just really happening and responding and being in a constant dynamic state of dancing with circumstance and with place. These days, modern humans also refer to instinct as being something more lowly. You might hear someone say, mm. oh, that animal's only behaving out of instinct, as if it's a more lowly form of expression. I think instinct is a very advanced high form of intelligence. If we humans could be more instinctive, we'd be a lot more effective. To me, instinct is responding with the best of one's abilities to 
everything, you know, situationally that is happening, going down in that environment, in that moment. And if you're responding to the best way that you can, you're automatic, not in a thought way, but just a sort of automatic response, an instinctive response. You will, by default, be bonding as a part of the collective and for the sort of collective appropriateness as well. Wow, that's so true, isn't it? The instinct, it is. It's in the moment and it's for the greater good. (laughs) Yeah. Which brings me to thinking like instinct, when I think of instinct, I think of nature's way of exactly as you said, yes, responding. And then when it comes to predation and prey, instinct is very alive. Mm. Yeah, (laughs) This is where it's really at its peak. And there is a sacredness to that relationship too, isn't there? Mm. I I know on a physical level, it, it may not look so nice or pleasant, but there is something more to it. Could you share a little bit about that? Yeah, it's all incarnate life needs to fuel their bodies with food, which is coming from other incarnate life. And I see no value difference or difference in the aliveness between a robust, wonderful blade of grass or spinach leaf and a springbok out there in the plains of Africa. And everything is alive. Mm -hmm. Everything is alive. Everything that has a life cycle is alive between the parent beginning and end or certainly the beginning and end of that particular physical expression. And so all of life needs to feed off other life, whether it's vegan herbivores who are grazing through permaculture gardens Mm -hmm. (laughs) or whether it's the lions in the plains of Africa and other carnivorous animals. Mm -hmm. And there's no judgment in that. There's no judgment or sense of hierarchy in life. And all, with the exception of humans, it seems, all the other species, plant, mineral, animal, all have an intrinsic understanding and acceptance of this and will, of course, have their instinct and other biological things going on, you know, just sort of stay alive as long as possible, but not at the expense of quality of life. They're just living their best life that they can while it's here. And when it's not here, it's just not here. The Native Americans have a lovely term for happens when a chase goes down and a large predatory animal catches up with its prey and literally has it in the grips of its sense. The Native American have a term called the conversation of death, which is that seemingly timeless final moment where the predator is locked in some very intimate you know, death embrace for the prey animal, or they're regarding each other eye to eye. And there's a, a moment of sacred mutual seeing. Very often the prey animal completely relaxes from point on, completely relaxes and surrenders into the mm. inevitability and into the, the greater dissolution. It's the physical body that has the struggle, isn't it? And then but something else is actually happening. Yes, yes, exactly. The physical body will go through its responses. The lungs will gasp for air. The muscles will tend. But on rare occasions, filmmakers have been able to get really close with the right equipment to get shots of the faces of these animals, of both parties, as a, you know, as a killer is going down. And if you look closely at that, you'll see that the eyes, the eyes of the prey animal are peaceful, not crazed and panicked, just mm. peaceful. And so the physiology is just acting out as it does. There's, you know, chemical processes driving, you know, stimulus and response. But at the essence level is already fully accepting of the moment and what is in the moment. Has there ever been a time where things have not gone as they seem, like where perhaps a predator Mm -hmm. is facing its prey? And I must admit I have seen some amazing things myself where I thought, oh, this is going to go one way, and then it just doesn't. Yeah. 
have you got a story you might be able to share? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Where I do know what you mean. I haven't seen it directly in, in nature, but I myself, but I have seen in footage, I've seen the nature documentary involving wolves who spent the entire day very carefully strategizing and following a herd of elk. And as strategic and clever as they are, we are working as a pack and eventually in the late afternoon they managed to separate out one of the young elk calves from the herd and they'd surrounded it and were closing in and the elk calf was too weak to even, you know, sort of try to run anywhere. And they got really close and then the alpha wolf was really close, just a meter or so from the elk calf and they looked at each other eye to eye. It was like a freeze frame moment on the video, you know, just everything seemed to pause. But you could see it wasn't actually a pause because the, the elk's ear was still twitching. And the alpha wolf and the elk calf regarded each other, both equally peaceful. And then the alpha turned around and just slowly and gently walked away. And the other wolves followed. You could almost see the sort of the thought bubbles of the other wolves, like, hey, that was our lunch. Like, what are you doing? You know, the other wolves looked a little disappointed, <laughs> but they followed their leader <laughs> away. And the elk calf just got up from the sort of, you know, half lying down position and walked back to its mum. I remember when I was in Africa in the wilderness in Falozi soon after I met you and we had seen the lions and then the hyenas arrived early the next morning and mm. I said to the guide, what's going to happen? He says, civil war. And I think he was kidding me. I don't know. If it, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he just wanted me to. And, and on one side there were these lions who were just sort of finishing their meal their kill the night before and then the hyenas were calling the other hyenas and it took a few hours mm. but we watched the hyena and there was the leader of the hyenas I call, mm. and then the one line that came out and it took a while but eventually they came into some kind of communication and the lines took away and left the what was left for the hyenas <laughs> mm. it was a, different a bit to the wolf story but to me it was just the natural this is intelligence as well, and it's just the natural way of recycling. And then the vultures were up above waiting for their turn. <laughs> right, right. Yes, exactly. Everything has its place. Everything understands that it's contributing to the collective. And so, again, unlike humans, those lions weren't going to stay until the very last morsel and completely pig out like some old school painting of an orgy and sort of lie there with full bodies at the expense of others in the food chain who, who needed something as well in the non-human sense. And in the old days, humans used to play by these rules as well, which is take only mm. as much as you need mm. and to differentiate between need and wants and greed. And sometimes in nature still, you'll see even the animals going with less than they need out of compassion for the mm. other species. You know, if it's really hard times, and there's drought and fewer prey animals, you might have found that the lions then would move away before they were satiated even, mm. before they'd had as much as they need to have compassion for some of the other species in the circle of life. They're so instinctively tapped into the circle uh -huh. of life, uh -huh. not only selfishly after meeting their own comfort. Mm. But that's an amazing story with the wolves. And I can only have, I have a visual of all the other wolves looking at the alpha thinking, yeah. what the hell? Like, yeah. and so what was going on there? Was it just that it just wasn't right? That it wasn't time? Yes. Yeah, it just wasn't time. Exactly. Just wasn't time. That's intelligence, isn't it? That's, yeah. That's instinctive yeah. intelligence. And that is, I mean, this communication, it, it's just happening. It's happening all the time. It's happening everywhere. Yeah, it absolutely is. And for me, instinct isn't only individual. It's a real instinct. It's automatically contextual. What we become aware of, what either moves us 
towards or away something, towards or away from something, is the individual thread of what has arisen out of the context, what is right for the whole context, for the good of all parties, including all the possible consequences that we could never know. Mm. I see what you mean. The intellectual knowing can be so limited, whereas there's so much more. And that's what the animal part of us and animals, they're attuned to that. They're just, they're living that. And it sounds like the native cultures, our ancestors, as you describe. And also just to add to that, what you were saying, um, they don't waste anything either. And there's a gratitude Mm. in everything that they take. Yeah, that was a beautiful way Mm -hmm. living as well. Us modern humans seem to have forgotten in a crazy way, really, to not waste and the appreciation for what we do take from from nature. And I'm just going to backtrack a moment to the story with the whales. I just want to get this picture. This is your life. You work with the wild animals all the time. Were you just happened to be in the right place at the right time or did they actually call you to help? Uh, Yeah, just just the right place at the right time. Just got home from something and walked in to find, reconnect with the internet and find the message just from just 10 minutes before mm-hmm. from someone who had been through a scope looking at some seabirds and seen and had called the authorities. So I just put on some warmer clothes and went out to spend my binoculars and um, yeah, just right place, right time. It happens mysteriously often. Mm-hmm. I can't account for it. And just something, you know, circumstances conspired to have me intersect with something that's going down when some assistance might be needed. And that assistance for the animal doesn't always look like them surviving the situation. Sometimes circumstances move me to intersect with a situation where it's a beached whale or dolphin that is in a lot of distress and and would love some help for euthanasia to leave the body more quickly. We've just got to show up and be present and moment by moment navigate with what feels right or just do the communication aspect and invariably in any wildlife scenario, you know, the point is mostly that there are other humans around or, you know, authorities or people who can or will or won't do something about it. Um, and from time to time, it, it's just me and the animal. And then sometimes I'm just there to witness or hold space for its passing or give honoring or find the litter of cubs that, you know, left behind that have been orphaned. Or, it's, uh, you know, one day I was out on a boat. I was on a recce on an island off the east coast of Africa going on a reconnaissance mission to check out a certain boat operator to see if they were doing you know, ethical dives and so on around a possible future ecotourism venture. Well, quite a few people on the boat. It was a wooden bottom boat and we were out there under motor, not sail, so it was quite noisy as well. And I looked up and noticed that particular very large seagull was flying a bit of a strange pattern and following us, but flying almost in circles around the top of the boat and calling in a way that just felt a bit distressed. An occasional call, but it felt a bit distressed. And so I wanted to hear that bird's call more clearly, so I asked them to cut the engines. And when they did, and the people shut up as well, I could hear it really was a proper distress call, and I could feel that the focus of that bird circling around was sort of down, like as if her eyes were boring right down into the boat and like through the bottom of the boat. And something made me get down on the floor and listen with my ear and I heard a very muted call coming from underneath the floorboards of the boat and we looked and we looked and we found that at one end there was a little hole in one of the floorboards and we ripped up that plank and there was the adolescent not quite a fledgling yet of this this mama girl clearly we were about 10 kilometers offshore at this point clearly this little one had crawled in and got stuck under the floorboards in the boat and we just merrily set off without noticing all the way from shore where the nest was So we hauled out this bedraggled young one who couldn't fly 
And uh, the mom was completely freaking out at that point because now there's humans handling her youngster. And I just put it down in my lap and communicated with the mom like, it's okay, trust us. We're going to have to, the, your young one can't fly, so we're going to have to take it back to shore. She did calm down and we turned around. It took us 20 minutes to get back. Mm. And she flew over us the whole time. And when we got to shore, I realized my new problem, which was, which nest? I could see about 100 <laughs> in the mangroves. <laughs> I was like, oh, no. <laughs> And, but I asked the mama bird. She was flying above me as I was walking along the beach. And I was like, well, can you show me which one is yours? But all I got was a, a mental picture of a backdrop of a certain intersection of branches and so on that, you know, I didn't have the perspective to be able to actually find in the physical. So I left the baby at the, at the base of some of the closer trees and they were reunited. Oh, that's a beautiful story as well. It's a really wonderful natural world and... Having these relationships with the wild, it must be so enriching, you yeah? know? Mm, it is enriching. It's just so, um, whatever the verb might be for real, you know, it's so mm. enlivening. And it's, it's not about the outcome. It's just mm. about being, it's lovely to dance with those relationships as brief as they may be. Most of the animals I come across, if it isn't the physical, I never ever see again. Mm. but it's like a moment of grace to be able to share space and a mutual knowing with those wild ones. They do have a different perspective on death, don't they? As you said, the whales, they were wanting to go and probably the mm. humans were wanting to rescue them, thinking, mm. Mm. you know, I think I've heard you share a story about the whales where the rescue squad were only focused on rescuing, was you you're able to sort of actually receive what the whale's true intention was and death isn't yeah they just don't fear it like or maybe it's that they're unattached how would you yeah it's a non-human animals definitely consider death to simply be a transition in a state of being Mm. it's not the final curtain it's not the end of everything and anyway even if it were they're not stupid enough to try to resist the inevitable <laughs> i think that i think that privilege is reserved for humans <laughs> you know so much of what we are about our cosmetics industry our medical and pharmaceutical medical. and everything is all about yeah really trying to escape death and taxes i mean really what are the chances <laughs> so um yeah, the animals, the other animals see it as just a transition in the state of being. So their attention and their desires are all around living well. It's about quality of life, not quantity of life for them. Well, humans have this in some way immortal. <laughs> oh, it's never yes. going to happen. Let's just push it away. It's never going to happen. Uh, <laughs> strange. And how about living in harmony with the creatures that we really pretty much all of us share our homes with the spiders and mm. the ants there's can you speak about that a little bit i, I think we'd all love to well again i think one of the strange ways us, us humans have become so disconnected is to give relative value to things and usually mm. the smaller the animal the less valuable they are Mm. They are the less they are regarded as full beings with personalities and everything i mean each ant has their own personality each spider so there's the matter of size, meaning less, you know, that we humans have made up a kind of a belief around that. Mm. Then there's also this strange phenomenon of we come into a natural environment, even if it's in a city, it was once a piece of earth with all earthworms and everything. And then we come in and we build our homes and suddenly we don't want the original inhabitants to be around anymore, whether those are Aboriginal peoples <laughs> or the original other species. You know, we don't want them around. So we spray pesticides on mm. plants and gardens and we sweep and vacuum up, you know, spiders' mm. webs and the homes of all these other animals and squish things and poison things and 
golly, it's just genocide upon genocide upon genocide in our you know, local environment, whatever the boundaries of property is where we, you know, where we might be living. There's no reason not to be able to live kindly in cooperation with all these other species. That might mean a little more time and effort on your part. If there are poisonous spiders, poisonous to humans that you're really worried about mistakenly stepping on and mistakenly getting their venom into you, then just relocate them gently to the outdoors. Mm. If there are other rodents or other animals coming that you don't want to have too many of in your home, then find out what their needs really are. Why are they there? Are they there because they're trying to get away from some threat outside or because of something attractive in your home, shelter or food? And then offer them that alternative outside somewhere. Mm. Yeah, build them a little nest in the wood pile. Mm -hmm. Make that insect hotel out mm -hmm. in your garden. And what's the big issue with having some spider's webs in your house? There's no, you know, there's no issue. We humans have ideas of aesthetics, but aside from the functionality of spiders and helping keep mosquitoes and other things, you know, <laughs> Aside mm -hmm. from their functionality, it's just we can live kindly with our neighbors. We really, really can. So it's about being considerate and about getting into their perspective. Um, so if you see an insect trapped up against a window trying to get out, it obviously can see where it wants to be outside and is trying to get out through this mysteriously translucent you know, material. Open the window or take a, a jar and a piece of paper and help relocate it. You know, who are we to... When we can, we've got the ability and we're the ones who created the obstacles and the barriers in the first place. Who are we to stop the animals living their best lives? And again, we should be doing this you know, if we can because we feel for it. We feel for it. We needn't get into some big guilt thing, you know, start feeling bad about it all or get like compassion fatigue or want to make a million Instagram posts about what a hero we're being. <laughs> It's just about silently getting on with the matter of being kind. So it's less about the what and the quantity of animals that we interact with, the small insects and so on. It's more about how we're being, if we're just approaching a situation kindly. And watch our language, which is so automatically programmed with our prejudice and hate speech against the others. Are we calling some insect or other species pests? Are we referring to some species of plants as weeds? These are words that carry an energy, an attitudinal energy in them that is so mm -hmm. disrespectful and disregarding of the intelligence of those species and their right to life mm -hmm. as well. I was going to say as you were speaking the word respect, respect no matter what the size or common thread to really to just show respect. Yeah. And I guess that empathy as well for what their needs might be and the answer coming in, it's usually because they're looking for a bit of food. They're hungry. I mean, we know what it feels like to be hungry. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's food or, or water and you can so easily just build something outside for them and they'll be so grateful mm. and they will go there in future. The thing is too that the human that does that will also feel so much better. Um, mm. Mm. I mean, some people could just take a cloth and wipe them up and then just mm. stay in that disconnect that doesn't feel good does it it doesn't it's no. not it's not really who we are but if we actually take that moment and care a little and live kindly as you say and perhaps do something imagine the feeling it's a completely different state of yeah. being even for even if you know adults have outgrown being able to feel that way the children still do a couple of months back, this little eight-year-old boy, who I hardly know at all, came and confided in me with tears in his eyes. He said, you know, my whole life I've been trying to not step on ants or step on insects, and sometimes if I'm playing and running, I don't notice, and then mm -hmm. I squish something. Mm 
and he said, I'd take this fresh thing to my mommy and say, I want to, I want to give it a burial. And she just laughs at me and says, don't be ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And he said, so now when I squish something by mistake, I go into my room and I cry in private. Boom. <laughs> that will have, may have an effect on him, the, yeah. the disregard yeah. That, yeah. that the adults show. That is sad. Children. Yeah, it is. And and anyone listening to this podcast, one of the best things we can do for the non-humans is to to help keep this alive. And any child that we know, Mm -hmm. whether we're a parent or not, we come across children. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. um, if we can keep this alive in children, not as some lecture we're giving them or some concept, but the moment we see a glimmer of a child showing any sign of their intuition, being at play or they want to tell a story about a moment of sense of connection that they had or they want to speak about their imaginary friend mm. be that one adult who says yes who shows interest in their story and who acknowledges their intuition and their and their instinct and their sensitivity because if just one adult does that they are less likely to fall into believing that they've got it wrong because the whole adult world says it isn't so and that life is a certain way. If you can just be that one adult voice of dissent for the mainstream adult thinking, you'll be doing a great service not only to that child but to all of life. And then the world will change. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. The butterfly effect. (laughs) (laughs) One child at a time, really. uh, Yes. That's how it goes. They're children of the future. Yeah, yeah. I was speaking with a friend the other day about how sensitive children are and I was asking about some children versus others and it was great. He said, no, any child will do. I thought that'd be a great book title. Yeah, any child will do. <laughs> Please, let's just invest the future in them because uh, <laughs> once we grow up and grow out of things, we're, uh, yeah, we're so disconnected. The thing is that it, they are so affected by us adults. What we show them and teach them is yeah. they tend to absorb it. And in saying that, I really want to just touch on activism because this we speak a lot about a state of being and dissolving and connecting, but there is clearly there's doing as well and there's action. And you speak about sacred activism as opposed to just being an activist, which can, mm. yeah, do you want to share a little about that? Just like we described what we can do in our own homes, the small daily things that will make us feel better and our cohabitants feel better or live better on a larger scale for the species that perhaps are not living at our doorstep or even living on the other side of the world and we feel for, what more can we do? Well, it's less about the doing. It's about what energies we can hold. Form-based reality arises out of the, the quantum or the preform, you know, anyway. And... It's more about holding certain energies, holding certain frequencies within ourselves as a state of being. And that is what is being emitted out into not just the space around us, but into the greater collective of life itself in that very quantum way where there's ripple effects from what we're thinking Mm. and feeling and therefore how we're being. Those ripple effects go out into perpetuity, into infinity. There's no physical... Newtonian physics limitation on them. Part of the idea of sacred activism is that, is to really hold certain states of being internally, particularly emotionally, and that is a contribution to the energetic reality and to the collective. Another part of sacred activism is to acknowledge that we can't do everything and that we shouldn't be in a feeling of fight around stuff, and but to notice with our own intuition as a sort of inner navigational tool to notice what we are called to. And this is not what we think we should go out and do or change, but what are we called to? Where perhaps that feeling of being beckoned towards something 
is coming again from that greater wisdom of the collective rather than our ideas of right and wrong, which is a polarity in itself. There's a fantastic philosopher and spiritual scholar and author named Andrew Harvey who writes about sacred activism and in a very realistic way points out that a lot of the sort of do-gooder stuff and trying to do good in the world is just all very unbalanced and it doesn't acknowledge or address the shadow in all of us, the shadow in all of us and how we're often fighting for something because we're resisting something else and we haven't sorted out our own internal issues and meaning-making. There's as much to be gained and learned and healed from dipping into the shadow and the more negative emotions as well. The encouraging thing for me is that we can all be a positive contribution to life just with how we're being in our emotional state. And that can be as simple as holding an intention or a prayer for a certain person or being or ecosystem, even very far away from us. This has long been proved with the intention experiments and the compassionate healing experiments, you know, human to human over distance. So we know the science is all there, that it absolutely works. For me, one last thing to say about sacred, sacred activism, though, is that it's not about the outcomes. It's not about if it works in quotation marks out there or not. The only point can be who we're being in this moment. Mm. And we have to be unattached to the outcome for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it's not our place to impose an outcome on anything. Mm. And there's, there's a greater collective thing unfolding anyway with its own lessons and its own necessary outcomes. Even what looks to us like death and destruction is simply you know, recycling of a sort. We need to use our intuition on the inner to notice not only what we're doing and feeling, but what our attachment is to outcome or not. We can just basically give it our best and drop a little drop into the ocean of all that is and then let it go, let it go and become what that drop wants to become or not. Something you and Colin spoke about in the fire element was reaction, action and reaction. And Hmm. this brought that to mind, what you were just saying then. And uh, it actually really showed me because if I think of all the things that are happening in the world that I don't like (laughs) or that I don't think is okay disharmonious the cruelty Mm. that's happening and it it can become very overwhelming and I feel like there's nothing I can do but listening in the fire series it really just brought back to me that well I can be responsible for myself and how I react and how I respond I may not be able to take action over on the other side of the world at, at this time but I can still respond to the situation mm. and that's the energetic response or the way of being. Yes, and yes, it, absolutely. It drops that overwhelm. It drops the judgment as well of what should and shouldn't be happening or how the outcomes should be as you described and then it was really nice to just say, well, I can be responsible for me because that's really true. Mm-hmm. When we are just that, when I say only, but it's possibly the biggest task of all is to be <laughs> responsible for ourselves If we really are responsible for ourselves, then everything that we touch as we move through our daily lives is going to be beneficially impacted by us being in a more aligned, more harmonious state of being. So really, we've got to just take care of business at home first and within ourselves. Mm -hmm. And then in ways we won't even know, we'll be walking in a more harmonious fashion, in a more kind fashion through our lives which might have a whole lot more beneficial outcome than us being in a very agitated, intensified activist state towards one, you know, good cause. Mm. And then we turn around and we're grumpy to our families and our pets and inattentive as we're taking out the garbage because we're exhausted because we've been up all night sharing petitions and campaigns, you know. (laughs) 
and fighting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that's the biggest oxymoron, like fighting for peace. You know, all you're bringing is aggression and fight energy to the table. I had a question. I just lost my mind. That is just so Excellent. Lovely. May we all lose our minds and come to our senses. <laughs> oh, thank you. You've done it. <laughs> oh, that, that, that kind of did sound good, did it? I've just lost my mind. Hallelujah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's celebrate. Now I can be me, the real me. <laughs> and tune in and connect in better and deeply with my, mm. oh, with nature, with everything. The living kindly and a harmonious world. I know this is a vision for you, is it? Living harmoniously with nature, mm. all coexisting. How do you see that vision? It is a vision that I hold lightly. It's not something that I even mm-hmm. really think there's any chance of having happen, but that doesn't <laughs> excuse me from holding it energetically. Uh, more as a reference point for myself to try to live more in that way and for it to as a reference for influencing my decisions and, mm. and choices. And we've touched on a few of the aspects of how this might look along the way of this chat so, yeah, it is about that state of presence without it being some mystical meditation experience, just as we're moving sensitively and with care through our worlds. You know, do we step only on the cobblestones or we just like rush through the grass and, you know, kill lots of species on the way? It comes down to also what we were saying at the beginning about living appropriate to our needs from a resource use point of view to becoming more connected locally supporting local businesses eating local produce and seasonal for that matter there's a huge ecological footprint and the cost of carbon emissions and so on and getting produce and other goods from far away you know be mindful of recycling in your daily lives and in your home and be mindful of what you order from wherever is coming in lots and lots of packaging and be participatory in this give feedback to companies and suppliers about how their impact can be lessened so it's about how we move through our daily lives i see for me a more harmonious world would be one where we are living a lot more connected to our locale like really locally in terms of input and output and food and recycling mm. and waste management and so on and even right close in in the intimate environment of our homes mm. what is the nature of our relationships and attentiveness and kindness towards even those little beings with whom we share space can we move and dance with them rather than trample all over them even inadvertently and if we are just you know it's that, again that's at a butterfly effect if humans are just doing this right locally that becomes right there a movement it becomes a wave of frequency that just grows and grows and grows not because we're trying to affect outcome on a numbers scale mm-hmm but it just becomes you know, incremental, it becomes exponential, not, not because we're trying it as a cause, but because we're just living it authentically. I love that, Anna. You've just brought it home again to let's not here to save the world. <laughs> mm. <laughs> it's not it, that whole big egoic thing. I, I love that. It's like, again, it's that self-responsibility and now extend that to the communities and the being kind and the harmonious living here, mm. here and now. Mm. Thank mm. you. Thank you. That was, that was beautiful. And what about having a lion heart, Anna? What does it mean to you, having a lion heart? Yeah, you can imagine that in my work with people and there's, and particularly in workshop environments, there's a lot of awareness of the mystical qualities of certain species and their archetypal energies and totem animals and power animals and so on. Mm. And those all have a role and did have a role to the indigenous people. 
but these days in the new age world there can be a lot of projection and egoic stuff that happens when people you know project onto wanting to become like a certain species for me it's a lot more really grounded it's like what can i truly learn from different species and how can i incorporate those aspects into myself and for me learning from lion and from lioness is the teaching of being well obviously courageous that means learning something in an era where i might not be that way already it means being courageous and taking on the inner is uncomfortable that I might be feeling that I'm holding back on, not giving myself a voice for that. So for me, having a lion heart is less about maybe the kind of the big messaging into the world. It's more about the inner work. Am I courageous enough to really go to task with the kinds of things that I may be uncomfortable looking at within myself? And I think in these times in particular, one of the lion-hearted qualities is an ability to just stand firm in the face of huge uncertainty mm. to just stand firm in the prospect of terrain and territory in the sense of all that is known territory just disappearing and dwindling you know dwindling in front of us is to stand firm and courageous in the face of not knowing and it calls for a certain trust in my inner strength even if i don't feel strong some of the time and particularly if i don't know how to deal with something to have a trust in that really deep, deep kernel of intrinsic strength to deal with whatever comes up, to deal with it mostly by standing firm. For me, line energy is less about going out and exerting power on the world. It's more about standing my ground, being deeply connected to my ground and being willing to deal with whatever comes my way. Mm. Well, thank you so much for everything again that you do and that you share. It's like a coming home speaking with you. <laughs> well, thank you. May we all come home to ourselves, you know, warts and all. It is mm -hmm. about being fully with ourselves and then, and then choosing which aspects to nurture and feed <laughs> and which to have compassion for in ourselves. Let them reside more in the background and bring to the foreground those ways of being that serve not only ourselves but those in our environment. Thank you so much, Anna. Absolutely. Thank beautiful. you, Jenny. Thank you so much for this time and for the awesome conversation. Thank you for spending your precious time listening to this podcast. I really do hope that you enjoyed. You can find some helpful links related to the topics we have discussed, download some freebies and join our Lionheart community by visiting our website, lionheartworkshops.com. To view this specific podcast blog, click on podcast at the main menu. Please also share this with friends, hit subscribe and leave us a review so that these ideas can continue to spread. Those pretty little stars help others to find us. The Lionheart Podcast and Lionheart Online Workshops is an online platform and community designed to enhance your health, natural and spiritual well-being. Until next time, please think about how you will embody your lion heart and reach your highest potential as the amazing human being that you are.